Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. (laughs) 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Gangs of Wasipur. Part two is over. My lover is a coal dealer. finally got to the part I was talking about last week. Yeah. So uh, last week, it, people may remember in our conversation, uh, you, I, I was so excited when I finished this movie, but also a little confused by some of the, the characters and stuff. So I went back and started rewatching the film. You instead instantly put on part two, started watching it. And you got to a part that you thought like, wow, that was crazy. And as I kicked off this film, I'm like, there's a, you know, something that happens at the beginning. I'm like, well, that wasn't really that much. And then I hit what it was that you were talking about. I'm like, Oh yes, this is what Pete was yeah. so excited about. Yeah. There are a couple of sequences Would you like, like to set that it up? in this movie. Um, but well, I mean, we can, we can talk about it when we get into the meat of the, of the show, but just know sure, it's sure. a big thing because there are a number of these kinds of sequences in this movie that seems to level up part one. Um, and, and I do think that after w- finishing part two, I, I go, I, you know, when, when I search for it in IMDb, it just shows it as one entry gangs of Wasipur yeah. at over five hours. And I, I get that now more having finished part two. I think I prefer it as one giant piece. This is a, it, this, the second half feels, uh, so deeply threaded and inappropriately broken in the middle. I, I like it as one movie and I uh, really enjoyed finishing the movie, uh, and, and feeling the complete sort of story all the way through the end. But I will say, I feel like there is much more sort of violence. Uh, in the second half, as the story amps up to its massive third act, uh, and uh, I, I was super gratified by the uh, the way this movie resolved. How did it hit you? Uh, yeah, it was interesting because as it ended, I instantly started thinking about the fact that does this make sense as two films, or does it really just seem like one film that you had a little break in the middle of watching? You know, and I, I think that. It did feel like there was a very natural point where they chose to end the first film and start the second film. Like, it it felt very natural. Like, this is kind of the end of our story uh, with Sardar as we're exploring his journey to kind of take over everything that was going on with these gangs in Wasipur. 
And then the second film really follows the, you know, his five sons, but we're really not watching all five. It largely is three of the film, the children that we're focused on, but we're kind of seeing the repercussions of everything that had gone on. So to a certain extent, it feels natural to have split it this way, but at the same time, it does feel so of one piece that I, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess I'm torn. I, I mean, I kind of dread the idea of sitting down and watching a five and a half hour film. I, I shouldn't say I dread it. I'm totally open to it. It's just not something that I put on my schedule too often. <laughs> yeah. And so watching two, two hour and 40 minute films makes more sense to me. But, uh, so yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have an answer for my preference at this point. I think, I think it works as one film. I would be very curious to just sit down at one point and just watch it for five and a half hours. But at the same time, I do feel that there at least was what felt like a natural break between the two. Because what is it? 317 minutes all in. Is that right? Five, five hours and 17 minutes, three hours and 17 minutes. Am I right about that? Well, I don't know. IMDb says five hours and 21 minutes. All right. So let's say 321 minutes. The twenty, the list of twenty-five longest movies at the top of the list is nineteen hundred at three hundred seventeen minutes. Bernardo Bertolucci's. There's longer movies than that. What was that movie that came out like that Argentine movie that came out like uh, two or three years ago? That's like fourteen hours long. I mean, obviously you're not getting yeah, that's <laughs> movies not. like that too often. It's a different right. type of movie, but yeah, right. Nineteen ninety-six Hamlet. 242 minutes like once you're up in that over 200 minute kind of realm um it just feels like it's pretty easy to get to 321 for me like just put an intermission in there and be fine yeah right as long as you can take a bathroom break at some point yeah right yeah Yeah, because what was um seven samurai was how long is that in that list uh, let's see. So 1900 Hamlet, Gone with the Wind, Once Upon a Time in America at 229, Lawrence of Arabia, 218, Ben-Hur, Seven Samurais, 207. Okay. Okay. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, 200. Is that the, which version is that? Doesn't say. Yeah. Well, anyway. Yeah. Obviously, there are some long movies out there. Yeah. Right. So anyhow, I, I just feel like once we're in that territory, I'm, I'm pro intermission. This movie felt uh, even as it's a generational kind of split, we'd already had, you know, so much stuff with Faisal right at the end of this movie and watching Faisal kind of deteriorate into into drugs. And that whole experience of Faisal, I felt like picking up in the beginning of the movie where he comes to understand how his dad was killed is an important transition. And it felt jarring to me to to watch it as a separate movie because I really enjoyed watching watching how he transitions into the head of the family. Well, and I, I think that that's largely the story that we end up having. I don't know if we knew that when we watched part one that Faisal was really where our focus was going to be. Like Exactly. The way that part one plays, it kind of seemed like... Um, his older brother, Danish, was going to be our principal character, only to have him killed off <laughs> shortly after Dad died Yeah, uh, at the end of part one slash beginning of part two. Mm-hmm. 
So that was that was an interesting setup. Um, and to that end, it, I don't know. I, I thought it made for an interesting film. So, well, this film, uh, when it was released over here, a uh, limited was not rated, and uh, probably would have been R, as the MPAA <laughs> had their say. Pro- probably. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, they, they sometimes do their job. Most of, <laughs> most of the time's questionable. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, Andy, Gangs of Wasipur, uh, uh, finishing up Gangs of Wasipur, Anurag Kashyap, uh, directing and writing. So, talking about uh, fathers and sons as Faisal takes over the reins of so much of the family business. He's into coal, he's into trains, he's into all kinds of crime, all kinds of crime. How do you, how do you think Faisal did as a, as a crime lord in the family business? <laughs> I think that the setup of this story is interesting because as this film starts, you were kind of revisiting the death of Sardar from the last film. We kind of see that death play out. We see his brother kind of taking the helm of the family business, Danish, as he's trying to avenge his father's death. He, uh, you know, they go after several of the people who had been involved in killing Sardar. And then Danish gets killed, and it's really mom, right? It's um, Nagma who kind of freaks out on Faisal, who just seems drugged out. And he, I don't know, it's his, his approach to life is so drugged out, and he has not quite realized that, that you know, he inadvertently led to his father's death by listening to his friend Fazlu. And as all of those pieces come into play and his mom freaks out on him and everybody is like, you know, when are you going to stand up and actually take charge of things? And it's kind of a trigger in the beginning of this film when it's like he, he realizes that, um, that I don't know. It was, it was interesting to see that shift in him. And it's the scene that you were talking about when he goes after Foslu and approaches him as a friend only to then, uh, you know, behead him. Yeah. <laughs> the most beautiful way. So beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful. Like absurd. So, so horrific. Well, but describe, wow. the, describe the shot. It's amazing. It's yeah, because I mean, it's night. He goes to see his friend. He's you know drugged out as usual, but uh, and Foslu is having like a big celebration because he had just been elected to be the you know one of the leaders in the town. And what he um, and, and so Faisal knows, hey, he he just because I, I think it was uh, their kind of I don't know their family uncle sort of guy who's always around Nasir who is kind of the voice of the story. He's our narrator. And Nasir says, oh, take somebody with you. And Faisal knows, says, no, I'm, you know, he's my friend. I'm going to approach him as a friend. And so he goes up to Faslu, And this is after having <laughs> mom practically want to cut his fingers off it because he doesn't want to do anything. And he says, I'm going to do it. And this is that moment. He goes to Faslu as a friend, brings him outside to talk. And they're having this chat and it's backlit. So we've got this uh, beautifully silhouetted, two characters having this conversation sitting on, I don't know, a wall. 
and this party going on in the background. And uh, Faisal gives uh, Faslu, I don't know, whatever it is that they're always smoking, but like a little hash pipe yeah, sort like of thing. Hash. And he gives it to him to to, and he lights it up for him. And then he proceeds to grab him, pull out his knife, and then cut his head off. And we're watching it silhouetted, blood just spurting across the seat, the screen in like this rainbow arc. And it's all backlit, so you just get this beautiful like red splashes just spurting up and up and up. And then finally, he drops the body and raises the head. And you're like, oh, wow, that was. That was a shocker. And because, you know, at this up to this point, Faisal just seemed ineffective. And this is that turning point for him when he makes a change in his direction and is going to start pushing. Now, he's not always making the smartest of decisions, like when he decides to start trusting uh, Eklok. But still, he is now essentially the powerful criminal overlord of the town. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, you, you mentioned Eklok and the the sort of unraveling of his ultimate sort of allegiances. Um, and maybe it's premature to to ask this question, but how did you feel about the general unraveling of uh, of of allegiances in the film around uh, Faisal? Because he develops quite a, a sort of cadre of uh, folks who are. Um, you know, apparently allegiant to him. And there are many people uh, or a couple of people in here who uh, are, they demonstrate their allegiance to Faisal uh, as sort of double agents uh, and working on both sides with the Ramadier. Everybody's working sort of together and against one another. Um, And then things start to unravel in the big third act. Yeah, it was interesting to see because, you know, we we really got a setup in the last film of our three families, right? We had uh, the Khans uh, headed up by Sardar Khan. Well, headed up largely in the last film by Sardar Khan. He, I mean, he was the, it was his dad who kind of kicked things off as we kind of see as they, they touch on in this film. But Sardar Khan, and then in this film, it's Faisal Khan, as the Khans who are kind of leading. Then you have the uh, Qureshis, which are the, um, in the last film, it was they were largely like the butchers and everything. And Sultan is still the, the family leader of them here in this film. And the end of the last film, we see those two families kind of coming together because of a marriage between uh, Danish and um uh what's uh you know i'm not gonna remember it's uh there's so so many yeah shama shama is uh, the one who marries danish and she is cousin to sultan and so now you suddenly have this connection between those two families although sultan is not happy at all with it and um you know because his son and i gosh i'm i lose track of which one is which and how they all relate but it's his son who actually is the unhappy one right sultan ends up being okay with this marriage but it's which is the one who is the one who ends up going after sardar oh my goodness it's the not sagir oh no it is sultan sultan does kill him so i so then i'm i'm not i'm forgetting which um, which is the one who is kind of supporting which of the Qureshis Ramadan, is... Ramadir. No, Ramadir is not a Qureshi. Ramadir is like the politician. That's what's interesting. We kind of have these two 
warring families. And then you have the political family, which is Ramadir and his son, JP, who he's always <laughs> just uh, telling how useless he is, which is very funny. But uh, Ramadir and JP sing. They are kind of the political bad guys, and so they're much harder to touch than these other two families, and they kind of come together with this marriage. And anyway, I guess to kind of get to your question about Faisal and how things unravel, it is interesting to see how there are tensions in the marriages that seem to play out and then kind of at a certain point, like Faisal and his wife, who also is uh, related to Sultan, it's it it no longer seems to be um, a, a huge issue for them to be going after each other while still being accepting that they're all family. It was kind of strange to see how that played out. But then you also have uh, Ramadir and JP constantly playing all of these people. You have Sardar's second wife uh, and her her son. Um, definite who starts getting into the mix and becomes a big player and so i don't know the whole thing i found to be really interesting in the scope of fathers and sons brothers and family business and how you know eventually we get this conversation between faisal and his wife about how he really never wanted to be in this he wanted to get out he, he's going to try getting out and then as you said it has this godfather three element where it's like it just keeps pulling him back in and he yeah. won't he can't let go of these things they have these needs for vengeance and instead of just stepping away and doing something else they have to go back and pursue it and and so many of these things seem to be kind of pushing faisal to this point where he's going to go back and cross those lines yeah. and especially as he gets uh, farther in with Iklok, who is an agent for Ramadir and trying to kind of sway them. And then you find out that, you know, Ramadir is also working with uh, um, Durga. Uh, Durga, and through, through her, um, definite. And so then you have this, like, triple agent sort of thing um, as... Definite is essentially working for Ramadir to clear out um, these people on behalf and make it look like he's working with Faisal only at the end to be the one who kills Faisal. It was it was a ride and it's very complex. But when you're talking about a five and a half hour movie, yeah, yeah they have a lot of room, a lot of these, yeah. complexity. Yeah. <laughs> you, I, so you talk about fathers and sons. I think there's a there's like a corollary, there's an asterisk there because the because part of the uh, kind of discussion is legitimacy of children because some of these children are not a part of the core family, especially when you talk about definite and and Durga, uh, because. Uh, you know, it's it's the family that had been sort of um, abandoned. Right. And yeah. so we have this child who is brought into the fold and made to appear legitimate. But but because of his, his he's so adept with criminality, but he is uh, he's he ultimately it doesn't feel legitimate and therefore has these ulterior motives that are that are going on. And I felt like his role, like his his uh, trajectory in uh, in the film Definites was fascinating to watch, and the the punctuation on his storyline of the final shot of him after you know uh, Faisal is after he kills Faisal in the police car, uh, standing with his mother, looking sideways over his sh- uh, and and looking then 
facing sideways, looking at the camera, was extraordinary, chilling, just chilling, as he exacts not only revenge for all that has been wrought on his family as a result of being made illegitimate, but also his ultimate ascension to power as ruler of the gangs of Wasipur. Well, in that story thread, we also have JP, who is a part of that, because JP is the one, as we saw at the beginning of part one in that flash forward scene that we get to kind of see the whole thing. He's the one who sends the Qureshis in to kill Faisal at his house. And we see kind of that at the opening of part one. We see the full thing here, and we get to kind of follow Faisal in a great wonder that kind of follows him up, uh, up the stairs and up a ladder through the roof across rooftops all this sort of stuff as he breaks his leg like so many interesting things through that but we get to see how jp is really playing the politics of all this too and going after his own father because he knows he can probably do a lot of this stuff i mean he puts all that into motion and his father is never going to let him have anything because his father looks at him as as such a complete waste of space and so to see him at the end there with definite as the person who's kind of behind all of this too, like both of these sons have found ways to kind of exact revenge on um, everybody who had kind of um, put them into a space where they weren't seen as um, somebody who would have a role in this group. Yeah, right. And, and speaking again of legitimacy, you know, JP, just because his father sees him as a buffoon, is rendered illegitimate in the yeah. family business of politics and crime um, and extortion. And I think that's another example of these sons looking to establish themselves in the eyes of their fathers and in the eyes of, of the organization. And, and it makes it just that much more interesting. I think, the, I think JP is an understated performance in this second half of the story. Um, we get him much less, but when we do get him, especially as the architect of, um, you know, so much of the uh, behind the scenes, that attack on Faisal's house, um, I think is, it, it's really perfect. Uh, you know, I like watching him age. Yeah. Just a quick question about that sequence. Uh, the only thing that I, I I felt like when I watched the first film and we see him orchestrating at the very beginning of the film, he's orchestrating this attack uh, by the Qureshis on Faisal's house. I kind of was under the assumption that, well, his dad must be dead because he's leading this thing. And, you know, I can't imagine his dad being um, supportive or or part of this thing. And then as we watch this film, we realize, no, his dad's very much alive, but it never kind of comes up, did it? Or did I miss something as far as his dad ever responding or saying anything to his son about all that? I don't think you missed anything. And my read on it is that he, first of all, this is a way for him to exert authority by doing yeah. this thing completely on his own. Um, and not specifically not telling his dad, right? Just again, yeah. uh, increasing his, his authority and power in the organization. But second, the perspective of his dad, I, you know, the, I think some of this critique is, is performative that I didn't find him the way he aged believable in some weird way. Like I would watch Ramadir. 
as he's, you know, as we watch him uh, through the ages and his the way he moved, the way he spoke felt like he was a much older man or that he was somehow dealing with some, I don't know, some uh, just uh, cognitive impairment, something like that near the end that just felt like he was he was aging more than he appeared. And maybe this is a makeup thing. Maybe he just didn't you know, they they weren't able to make him look the age that he was performing. But I struggled with that. And it kind of got in the way with feeling with understanding character intentions for me. Did you have any issue with that? I, I think I largely wrote off issues with aging with a lot of these characters, because you could tell that they were putting, you know, powder in their hair, things like that. Um, it, there was a point when Romadier, when the actor seemed to kind of, they, they were doing kind of the Marlon Brando Godfather thing where it seemed like they were putting some cotton balls in his cheeks to kind of give him a little more of a jowly <laughs> right. look. And so, you know, I kind of wrote all that off as, you know, they're, they're clearly just trying to keep a lot, as many of these actors as they can over this vast expanse of, uh, you know, 80 years that they're telling this story. Yeah. And so it didn't bug me too much. Did any of that get in the way of understanding Ramadier's intentions for you? Well, Ramadier, as far as his intentions go, I think that I largely just had a sense that he was like this. Uh, he was somebody who happened to be in the right place at the right time in the first film. And the British gave him the responsibility to run these uh, coal mines. And through that, he ended up ascending into political power, and that really protected him largely through the films, because there were a number of points when they'd say, well, we can't get to him because he's off in the capital, and, you know, he's, you know, he's in a place where we can't reach him. And that seemed to kind of be a thing with him uh, at various points in the film. And it seemed to be that, I mean, uh, you know, there were a number of points where various cons whether it was Faisal or Sardar or uh, Danish, maybe even at one point and definite, we're all like, you know, uh, he is responsible for the death of my father and my grandfather, and I'm going to kill him at some point. Like, they all seem to kind of say that at some point. And so there's, there is an element of him putting himself into a place where he is working against these people. I don't know. I guess I found him to always be doing it in that political way that worked well for him to kind of get ahead politically, whether it was with one side or the other, and seemed to be doing it in a way where he might be getting his hands dirty, but never in a way where it was it was direct. And so he was always kind of safe from that. And, yeah. and so to that end, I, I liked that it seemed to, to be saying, you know, there are these politicians out there who are doing this sort of thing, and they're very much dirty players, but they're doing it, they're, they're putting so many layers between them and what is happening that they're essentially kind of safe from ever being accused of anything. Right. Well, and, and especially, like, notable, Ramadier's plan, that, like, he plays the longest of the long games. Like, his plan to undo Faisal is to have definite released and have Faisal like rise to power and then get, you know, uh, get completely taken away by the power so that he is unable to focus when people actually come for him and aim for him. Like his, his game is very long and very risky, but ultimately it kind of works. Yeah. Like he's funding Durga after, uh, Sardar, uh, well, after he dies, because Sardar, we had seen, had been kind of giving money to Durga to help raise Definite. Yeah. But 
there, there, there was that point when Ramadir says, you know, he was taking care of Durga after Sardar died. He was taking care of Definite. He brought Definite into his fold. And that was what I found so interesting because that was kind of part of the long game because you'd have Definite kind of telling Faisal all this stuff, right? Like, he's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, he's totally having me do all of this stuff for him, but I'm totally on your side. Although at the end we realized, oh no, he was actually always on Ramadir's side. Like he had, he had definitely had bought into everything that Ramadir had been pitching him, but was using that to his advantage to always stay close to Faisal. And that, that is very much part of that Ramadir long game that was, that you're talking about. Well, but wait a minute, because I think it was actually a level up from that. Like he was apparently in with Ramadir, but really he was in with JP, who wanted to see the death of everybody. And well, JP true. Was, right? Like JP wanted his own father dead. And so it was ultimately these illegitimate kids, JP and Definite, orchestrating the death of both of their fathers, right? Right. Yeah. In an effort to take over the thing. And that was the only surprise at the end, right? Like at the end of the movie, we knew the whole thing until Definite, like, I really believed that Definite was on the side of Faisal and that his betrayal of Ramadir was legitimate. And when he turns around and the police say, anybody want a tea to the prisoners in the back seat?" And everybody gets out to get a tea, uh, except for Faisal. I, I still didn't quite believe that it was Definite who was going to pull the trigger. He came out with his hands uncuffed, and I thought that was, that, that was amazing, an amazing turn. And they shoot it in an interesting way because we're just yeah. on Faisal and we get to see his reaction when he sees, um, you know, what we essentially know that definite is there who's going to shoot him. But we're seeing it all from uh, as we look at Faisal acknowledging for the first time that this is the person who's going to kill you. He's never been on your side yeah. and he's been playing you this whole time. And that was yeah. really interesting. I really enjoyed the way that that um, that played. Absolutely. And and I think that uh, uh, definite that uh, was I mean, he he played that character so well in a weirdly understated way uh, toward the end, because he was just this like criminal intent. He was walking, talking criminal intent and uh, his his turn as an adult, both demonstrating that he is allegiant to Faisal and then betraying him was uh, but like not telegraphed at all in the most satisfying of ways. I thought that was terrific. It's it was very interesting the way that he's kind of introduced because um, I think it was uh, who was he working with? I can't remember who he was working with, but we get that whole sequence when we get to see definite essentially trying to get into the family business as he's trying to kill some of these people and you see how ineffective he is and he's you know his gun jams and it's it almost like turns into this comedy yeah as as he is like then running <laughs> trying to get away from this guy who just won't stop chasing him and it goes on forever and it was it, i don't know it just made me laugh it turned into like this scooter chase and so much stuff going on and I, I just, I found it to be like an interesting exploration of this character as to like, are they trying to just make him seem completely ineffective? But then I also remembered, you know, we kind of had this with Faisal also when he goes through this whole process in the last film of learning about how things work in the business. And I guess where, and the, the whole thing was like when he goes to buy the guns only to then get arrested on the train because he's carrying guns. Only to then right. learn that it's the gun seller 
who is actually has this scam where he sells you guns for cheap and then has the cops arrest you and takes the guns back and then will resell them to you if you are stupid enough to come back, which he does. And he recognizes the gun because he had made a little mark on it. And that's how he knows what's going on. And he hides the guns. Anyway, it was this whole, it was great. It was this whole sequence that we have. Yeah. And uh, it's a, but it's a process. It's a learning process of these young people essentially being kind of idiots when they get into this industry and you know, maybe for some of them, it's a chance to say, you know what, this is not for me. I was arrested and I don't want to continue it. But as we see in both cases, Faisal learns from his mistakes and and grows more um, responsible, I guess you could say, even though he never gets off the drugs. But he essentially does become a very effective leader in this crime syndicate. Same thing with Definite. He is completely ineffective in this assassination re- attempt. And, uh, but, you know, he uses his, um, his experience through that and ends up, you know, becoming very much this, uh, kind of this, um, triple agent, you know, this very much this person who's working for, um, a lot of different parties in a way that you just don't expect. So it was really interesting, interesting to see the way that those two characters had kind of this interesting parallel. I think so too. And you brought up the, you know, some of the comedy in the show, definite, even though not in the scene is part of a who's on first comedic scene in this movie where they all try to figure out what the word definite <laughs> means. And right. it was, it's, it's fascinating. It's like, I, I just found it fantastic. Like these, these guys talking about like definite, what does it mean? Deaf? Well, and nobody speaks English, so we don't know. Maybe deaf means he can't hear and it, it net means something else. Like it just yeah, over net, and over. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. I thought that was just a great little sequence. Like just the the roller coaster of intents of the movie, I think is is um, is really really great. And and some of these little comedy sequences, I think we we had just more of a weirdly lighthearted experience with this movie in the scope of some you know extraordinary violence too. Yeah, it does transition for me to perpendicular and tangent, uh, right? Because we have that whole sequence where they're they're stealing stuff and really bugging people um with and they don't like it and so uh they hire sultan or they send sultan to go and actually um defy the agreement that they had with you know with the uh, between the families and uh end these kids and it goes to this horrific train yard just brutal assassination yeah right and, which which actually is the uh, is the event that the instigating event for the last half of this movie? It's yeah, it's it's that shift that, uh, and again, it's these families, right? You have uh, you have these um, uh, the relationships and the the drama between them, and I don't know, I, I found it to be always interesting how you know, at this particular point in time, now Sultan is going to be trying to go after perpendicular, or you know, they like they. As long as they can find somebody they can go after who's part of that family, there are these points where they say, where it seems to say, you know, this is a good way to get back at them. And, and so it's, it is a very interesting next step to the film, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Well, and it takes us to this, to, to the place where the first, I think in the whole epic, the whole saga, the first woman is assassinated in the course of their violence, and that changes things. And and that, I think, is a real testament to the movie, right? Because there's always, just when you think there's no line left to cross, there's another line that they cross. 
Yeah, and that's where they kill mom and uh, in the in the marketplace. And the I, I wasn't sure who that younger woman was. If she was a um, like a, was just a housekeeper or some other relative, I wasn't quite clear. But um, I know that mom sent her, "Hey, run out the back," and then mom gets shot, and then the guy runs out the back and shoots her too. And so it is. It's this definite shift where now they're just going to kill anybody who's involved, and yeah, and that's quite a turn. And it definitely takes things. I don't know. I suppose in in a crime story like this, it felt eventual. It felt like, oh yeah, eventually we were going to get to this point where they were just not going to care who they killed, and uh, like once we get to that, which which actually was interesting because when we got to the scene where it's the attack on Faisal's house, mm-hmm. um, I knew that they would kind of leave, but it, I, I guess I wasn't surprised by that point that they're attacking the entire house and okay to kill anybody who might happen to be there if they could mm-hmm. get them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it really kind of gives you a, a, a darker sense of uh, potential uh, danger for everybody. Well, and and I, the last movie, the big line was introducing guns because so much of the movie takes place with these guys who just have knives and you know are stabbing each other and their crimes are but but the discovery of guns of handguns in particular changes the game this movie the line is first they they kill a a woman totally changes the dynamic and then this movie becomes sort of scarface the final sequence of the film, the standoff at the hospital is um, is is goes from knives five hours ago to a lot of guns, big, big automatic guns and like a, a, a almost comedic number of guns and the final assassination of Ramadier. Well, the final assassination of Ramadier, which, um, yeah, was very funny, but also incredibly dark. But yeah, because it's like. Faisal is so obsessed at this point with killing Ramadier that he he wants to be the only one who puts bullets into him, and he wants to put a lot of bullets into him to the point where he has somebody go out and get another loaded gun, bring it up to him so that he can continue shooting this dead body. Like it was like horrifying and also incredibly humorous in the way that he was kind of obsessed with this need to do this. Yeah, and, and the fact that they bring up just a line of guns and he keeps keeps shooting them. Uh, you know he. He's very sure that Ramadier is dead before he leaves. Very sure. Very sure. Well, and it just, I, I found it to be an interesting and I suppose inevitable way for this film to end. You know, Faisal had started shifting criminal enterprise to working online and, and doing this sort of online trading and stuff that I, I was like, oh, okay. So he's definitely getting into the modern age and finding ways to kind of keep shifting the criminal enterprise into fitting with the times. Yet, he still can't get away from the down and dirty shooting people when it comes to the end of the film. And I found that, for you know, especially coming on the heels of his uh, his conversation he has with his wife when he wants to get out of this, only to realize he can't let go of these things, has to pick up not just one gun, but a bunch of guns, and actually go through the process of this, of this vengeance that he cannot let go of, even though he has found so many ways to move on in, in other capacities. And that's what I found so interesting about him as a character and I don't know, just the nature of these crime stories that a person just cannot let go of their roots to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. It it really, I mean, it it's kind of a, a 
I was going to say fun parallel. It's not a fun parallel at all, but it is a it is certainly a parallel. Like the you know you look at the the sort of addiction to crime, the addiction to violence, and Faisal is also a, a drug addict, and um, you know perpendicular is addicted to uh, inflicting pain on others, and even kind of himself, you know, playing with the the uh, razor blade in his mouth all the time. Like there were some really grotesquely fun sequences of him sort of coming of age as a young criminal like this this movie really deals with that like the inextricable nature of crime to family like it's impossible to get out once you have are so invested once your family lineage is so invested in this lifestyle yeah and that's something i found i don't know i guess i find interesting with the women that they end up with and i mean largely the women that you know we end up kind of following through the, the last part of, or this film they are they are in the family already like they are Qureshis, uh you're their cousins to sultan and so we have this sense that they're they're raised in this dark underworld but in the last film like when we see sardar meeting uh his wife uh, there was no sense that she had kind of come up in the world it's just i guess they're people from wasapur or donbad and so they're kind of expecting a lot of people to have this this darkness. And so I always find it interesting in these sorts of films that, um, that these people, these women end up in these relationships with these men and end up just kind of going along with it, I guess, because it leads to a better life. They're making their, you know, they have a lot more money and a lot more, uh, stuff. And, and maybe that's what it boils down to. Yeah. I think everybody is addicted to it, the lifestyle in their own way. And I think that the movie is big enough to actually give you room to breathe into those uh, observations. Uh, right. The right. real benefit of a movie that's, you know, 321 minutes long. <laughs> Indeed. Music. Oh, okay. yes. We music. had a Lots couple of music. Of, there's a lot of music. And the way they used music in the first movie, you know, we had the wedding singer guy who was kind of always at events and he would he would sing songs that sort of told stories. Well, I'm just curious your thought on the way they use music this time. The, the music, it seems like as I'm watching the thing and the subtitles keep kind of cruising by, they're they're really using the music not of the performative pieces. There are a couple of sequences, I think, where the women are singing um, and their songs tell a story. But just soundtrack stuff. It appears to move the story along and talk about characters in a way that feels quintessentially Bollywood without the the big dance number. Like we do have some of that that same guy singing here, like at both of the funerals, he's there singing songs, right? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the very beginning of the film. And um, but you're right. I, I I like that. I mean, that was kind of a touching part when uh, Faisal's in in prison and he asks his wife to sing him that song and and there were a few points where it kind of created that connection to a place or a time of more comfort or childhood who knows what it was but they they were very interesting songs in the way that they played here and uh, very much i i found it to be interesting that so many ways the film was connecting to people going to the movies and really being fans of particular movies and characters and songs from these movies or soap operas, like so many songs from soap operas that they seemed to be talking about. And every time the subtitles come up for a song, it was always, I don't know if you know, I'm sure this was the same case for you, but it was always like um, song or, you know, Bollywood 
a, you know, classic Bollywood song or something like that. Like the lyrics kind of call out the fact that, oh, this is a song from some other movie or something, you know? Yeah, we're in homage mode right now. And I love the way that that whole thing is introduced because we have Durga. We have this perfect shot of Durga at the movies. And it's not like a giant full frame of the theater kind of with the heads down below and the screen. It's a very low shot. So you have this crazy uh, angle of the screen of this movie and his head looking straight up because he's like in the front row. It is just a great shot that demonstrates how askew his worldview is. Yeah. Uh, as a relate to the movies. Well, and it also, in a very interesting way, especially in Bollywood where so many movies are tied into songs, there was an interesting conversation that Ramadir has talking about how one of the biggest reasons that he has been able to last so long is because he doesn't like movies. Yeah. And all of these other people, they get so attached to particular actors or particular characters and songs from their particular era, and they all become their own little kind of click because they're interested in that thing. And then the next generation is interested in this group of actors and this group of songs and movies. And because of that, they all have these different opinions and viewpoints, whereas he kind of sees himself as somebody, I don't like any of that. And I just kind of am, and they're just kind of always playing the the whole field. And I, I found that to be an interesting point to bring up in this film that is featuring so many songs and, and elements from other movies. Yeah, for sure. Last point unrelated to movies is about snakes. <laughs> okay. There's a scene when Definite uh, goes up to a street performer who is playing his little horn to tame the cobra, and Definite grabs the cobra and, and begins wearing it like a boa around his neck, <laughs> holding this live cobra by the head. And I'm going to tell you, Andy, Nobody seems to care enough for my level of anxiety around that entire sequence. <laughs> like he walks in and he walks in and everybody's like laughing at him. Oh, yeah, you have a cobra. He's here. Hold this. Gives it to Nasir, I think, or somebody. He gives it to somebody else to walk around with the with the cobra and, and hold on to it. And I find that very disconcerting. That whole sequence, I thought, was just uh, too much. <laughs> all the violence in the movie the beheading for me it was handing a snake from person to person i couldn't think <laughs> it was the snake it, it was, was the snake, snake. that pushed me over the you edge. gotta know how to hold it pete you, you gotta, gotta know, know how, how to how hold, hold your hold snake it. wait that yeah. sounds awful Stop. <laughs> uh oh and, and that leads us into the flashback there's from a narrative structure point they do a lot of this where a character will be telling a story and then they flash back to the whole sequence or they flash to um you know it's it very much is sort of a caper trope where you have somebody saying we're gonna have to break in to this bank and then they show the heist it's an ocean's 11 thing it's a i mean it's a, it's a, a tool uh used for years and years and this they they have a couple of those sequences in this, and my favorite one is the trick that is actually in the snake scene where um, it shows definite tricking the other kid to jump the motorcycle over the ravine, <laughs> and the kid actually uh, hurts himself quite badly. <laughs> the one that I thought was interesting, and more just because it was a surprise flashback to have added was the one where we jump back to the scene in the first film where you have a group of i think they were Qureshis who kidnap a uh, a woman from town to kind of use her as kind of a, a sex slave and then uh sardar 
forces the the main guy who did this to divorce his wife and marry this woman that he had yeah uh, that he had soiled and sullied then through this flashback we learn that the person that is involved Iklok who actually becomes this person who's kind of working with Faisal is actually the son and speaking of illegitimate sons he's the son of that guy from the first marriage who he and his mom ended up getting forgotten because of everything that Sardar did and how Sardar forced his dad to divorce his mom and marry this other woman. And so again, like that was just out of nowhere that flashback came, but talk about another interesting element about fathers and sons and, you know, vengeance and everything. Well, and recontextualizing past events, right? We didn't know yeah. the whole story and the fact that Iklok becomes such a central figure in the undoing of uh, of Faisal and Ramadir at that point uh, is fascinating because we, we only thought it at the point that it was presented to us as the audience, it's a good deed. It's, you know, it's saying, hey, you got to take care of your business. But, you know, the fact that it turns out to have been um, you know, every somebody loses, no matter how that equation gets solved, is is uh, you know uh, useful. It's a good good tool. Yeah, really interesting. You got anything else? I think that's everything. So uh, we will be right back. But first, our credits. <laughs> The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Mahesh Vinayakram, Oriol Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs> All right, how to do it award season? Same as same as last time. We yeah, pretty much. I mean, we talked about uh, this last in our last conversation because both films came out the same year, and largely, as I was kind of looking at it, it seemed to kind of be just treated as one film in the awards circuit. So all of those awards that I talked about in the last film uh, largely are all part of the same conversation here. Okay, so how do you handle? the box office for a movie like this. Yeah, it's tricky. What's weird is it does seem like in conversation of budgets, they did kind of split them out because they were released separately. And so I guess they were trying to track how much they each made. Um, so I, I was able to kind of find some information on this. So part two did follow very quickly on the heels of part one, just six weeks later, opening August 8th, 2012 in India after the initial premiere at Khan, as we talked about last time. This movie garnered less of a crowd than part one, but still eh, barely profitable. Uh, from the overall budget of 2.3 million for both parts, this part seems to only have cost 1.2 million, at least how, that's how they're saying it. Uh, very small budgets from what we're used to here in the States, uh, especially for such an epic film. Uh, this movie earns 2.9 million or 3.2 million in today's dollars. That lands this with an adjusted profit per finish minute of almost $12,000. Again, poorer than they had been hoping for, but still profitable. I wonder how the movie has, has done over the years, like in the, the last 
you know, 10 years. Like, it feels like this is a movie that could, you know, establish itself in the long term as one of those, like, Indian crime classics. I would think so. I mean, it, it's very highly rated on, you know, everywhere you look, on IMDb, on uh, Letterboxd. It seems to be something that has quite a fan base and a, a group of people who support it and find a lot to talk about with it. And yeah, I mean, I'm right there, too. There's a lot to discuss in the course of this uh, massive crime story. Yeah. Well, um, I'm so glad we put it on the list, uh, but especially the second, uh, uh, you know, getting through the second half made the entire thing so much more rewarding. I, I really enjoyed this movie, and um, I, I can't wait to see how you rate it. Uh, well, I, too, also really much enjoyed it, and I'm very much looking forward to the day when I do have a spare five and a half hours, because I do <laughs> want to sit down and just watch this whole thing as one yeah, big movie. for sure. You think they'll ever, ever release it? black and chrome edition of this movie just the whole thing in black and white that would be that would be interesting yeah i'd be there for that i'd be there too well we'll be right back for the ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's movie the slumber party massacre directed by amy holden jones kicking off our next series the slumber party massacre trilogy the basketball team is planning a party a slumber party The party begins at 8 o'clock. Love it, too. You think I'm getting better? <laughs> but be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. <laughs> Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. Yeah, Courtney, you're underage. Negative. Let's go. You're oh. not going to eat the dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. But for those who stay, there'll be plenty of surprises. <laughs> and non-stop action. <laughs> sure no one's getting any sleep the night of the slumber party massacre close your eyes for a second and sleep forever all right andy what are you doing now, i told you last week that i felt like my letterboxd uh rating was going to uh, probably equate to both movies so whatever happens here will define a change potentially to my rating from last week on letterboxd.com what do you how do you how are you handling this uh, you did say that. I feel like I'm still at four stars for, for both parts. I think I found this to be a very, just a very exciting, gripping, large story. Um, I, I think this is one that there's just so much going on that it would really take me viewing this, you know, two or three more times to really get to a place where I would be happy to say, oh yeah, I'm, I would give this a higher rating. I'm, 
actually with you on this. I w- I came into it thinking, okay, this is this one's going to move everything to a five star because you know Pete no half stars right. I feel like I'm going to stick with four stars now with the full intent of doing the five and a half hour watch at some point. Like maybe I'll con my son into sitting down and watching the whole thing with me um, because that I, I feel like that whole experience might push everything up a star. Yep, that's where I am. All right. Four stars in the heart. Well, don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. And remember, it does work for renewals as well. And remember, we also have membership. And if you are interested in learning more, you can go to thenextreel.com slash membership. Members get every episode a week early, plus uh, ad-free and additional content at the start and end of uh, some of the episodes. Plus, we do member bonus episodes. We have a ton of member bonus episodes this year and uh, definitely worth checking out. So again, we'd love, uh, we love that you're tuning in. And if you would love to throw some love our way, uh, just go to thenextreel.com slash membership where you can learn more. So what did you think about Gangs of Wasipur Part 2? We would love to hear. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Oh, you know what I didn't, we didn't talk about. Did you get a sense from this film that, that the crime was ever going to end in this area? (laughs) Because I was, I was reading about it and in the, in the reality of this area, it does sound like the mafia's downfall actually didn't come from gang wars, but what it says, it came from the differences between, um, the widow of essentially the Ramadir character and his brothers, um, there were a lot of differences and it gave people an opportunity to make space for themselves. And so it ended up kind of, uh, the, the mafia all kind of ended, um, in the area, but it did sound like, I mean, this thing was based on, uh, yeah. you know, real stories. And so it's, it's interesting that, um, the film kind of depicts it in a way where, yeah, it's going to keep going just under new leadership. Yeah. And I, you know, I wonder if they were like, when, when would that have happened? Because this movie is telling a story that goes up through 2004, 2005, I think somewhere in there. And it's after that because it's after Ramadir, the Ramadir character, although he, he dies. Uh, it's, a, that's another difference. He dies. Um, he gets poisoned in, um, in a, his home village where, um, he's there for an election. I believe, uh, or he's campaigning. Well, it and, sounds and that was actually ninety one. Actually, yeah. sounds fairly similar, right? It's just more bullets in this movie version. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's, right, it was right. around the election. I uh, I think that's actually really interesting, and I wonder just how much they, the movie would have been able to make an observation being made in say made in two thousand ten eleven, released in two thousand twelve. Like maybe they didn't know that crime was ebbing and flowing the way it was kind of the mafia was kind of falling by that point. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. Great movie. Yeah. 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 Letterboxd give it, Andrew. As Letterboxd always do it. Uh, How'd you you do? I went high. I went four stars. Okay. All right. I went, I I went high. So why don't you go? Why don't you go first? Mine is, uh, (laughs) it fits into, I guess the, male fantasy and draw to uh, violent gangster films. Srijan Sinha 
says, watched both in one sitting and didn't even get up to piss once, but I had an erection the entire time. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's see if this holds. I had a five-star from... <laughs> I had a five-star from Shoran Srivatsan who says, Moral, don't nut in bongs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay that's pretty awful that's pretty awful (laughs) Uh, hey i will say here's here's one more gulam has a five star says the satisfaction of getting revenge plus bass drops are the dopest thing indian cinema has given me (laughs) an awesome conclusion (laughs) that is true awesome bass drops in this second half of the movie indeed thanks Thanks, box. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.